0: Sunday, September the 29th, 1935, Scotland. It's a quiet Sunday afternoon in rural Moffat, Dumfriesshire. In charge of the sleepy constabulary is police sergeant Robert Sloane. He's a square-jawed man in his late 30s, a former soldier with the Scots Guards. When a situation arises, he meets it head-on. And at 3.40pm, one arises. Details are sparse initially. Two young men on a walk have seemingly made a disturbing discovery. He agrees to meet them outside a local pub. Sloane sets off on his bicycle. Moffat is a handsome town, sitting 60 miles southeast of Glasgow, 50 southwest of Edinburgh. He passes the ram statue in the marketplace, built for the town's wool-trading past. As he pedals, the pungent tang of sulphur stings his nostrils. In the 17th century, that very sulphur transformed his town into a popular spa destination. These days, Moffat is more popular with grouse hunters and tourists. And it is two such out-of-towners that Sergeant Sloan meets outside the pub. The two young men swear to him that they have seen bloody remains. Human. In all likelihood, he's probably a dead sheep, a deer maybe. Nor is some prank or hoax out of the question. Still, their shock seems genuine enough. Sloan asks them to show him and together they leave town, heading north, climbing steadily through the vivid, green Scottish countryside. They take the old road up towards the Devil's Beef Tub, a dramatic, hollow, 500-foot deep. As the UK emerges from its lingering post-war economic depression, tourism has given oxygen to little border towns like Moffat. But local trades and farms are dying out. Many of the young men around here never returned from the Great War, and it has been a wet summer. As such, these lowland hills are quiet today, and nothing suspicious is observed by Sloan along the way. Two miles out of town, they come to a steep gorge. Garden home Lynn is studded with rocks and flanked with birch trees. The river Lynn flows through it, though she's just a calm trickle this afternoon above the road traverses a stone bridge. The men point to below it. Sloane tells them to wait for him and scrambles down the steep 40-foot gorge to the stream bed below. There, he gathers himself, surveying the scene. And it is a scene beyond comprehension, beyond words. Already hardened by the horrors of war, Sloan knows the smell of putrefied flesh by heart. Sure enough, he sees a severed arm and hand, rotten, rising out of the stream, as if in greeting. Other body parts scattered about. A human head, swaddled in cloth. Chunks of flesh are wrapped in newspaper, clothes and rags. Others, just left exposed. Sloan knows a blood-curdling crime has been committed. But as he looks at that rotten hand, he has no way of knowing that the first piece of the puzzling jigsaw murders has been laid down. Murders that have weaved their way from India to Lancashire through assumed aliases and violent envies. Murders that will become one of the most notorious crimes of the age, requiring cross-border collaboration with Scotland Yard in the hunt for a brutal butcher. Sloan also has no way of knowing that the gruesome mystery strewn around his feet will lead to groundbreaking scientific advances that will go on to define criminal forensic investigations in the UK. Garden Home Lynn has never troubled the pages of the history books, but it has just become the stage on which the first modern murder investigation will play out. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Standing amid the mutilated body parts, Sergeant Robert Sloan takes the moment to center himself. Who were they? Who dumped them? And why here? Surrounded by bloody slaughter amongst the maggots and flies, another man might have felt overwhelmed. But Sloane has survived the carnage of Ypres, Cambrai and the Somme. He's used to making quick decisions in the midst of chaos and carnage. He sends the young men back to town to fetch help, giving them precise commands that can be followed even in their state of shock. Then he makes a series of sketches and measurements of the scene in his notepad recording everything you can see with detailed notes. I observed the right forearm and hand of a human being, also a human head, laying amongst rocks in the bed of the stream. I then observed another head, a large number of pieces of flesh with skin attached, a left forearm with hand, minus the top of the fingers and thumb, two bundles wrapped in what appeared to be cotton bedsheets, one bundle wrapped in a pillowcase, one bundle wrapped in a lady's blouse. From one of the bundles produced the lower part of two legs, feet included. One of the heads was partly exposed at the crown, the remainder being covered with paper and child's clothing, secured with a piece of elastic and tied around with hemp twine. By the time he's sketched, measured and noted down everything of importance in the area, it's around 5pm. The light is fading. At that time, two local doctors arrive, along with a police car from Lockerbie. The scene is swarming with maggots and insects. Foxes are never far away. It's agreed that the remains must be moved to a safe place to preserve evidence. With no alternative, Sloan carries them piece by piece up to the police car. Sloan drives back to Moffat. The cemetery sits on the edge of town. With nowhere else to take the foul-smelling bundles of flesh, he deposits them in the local mortuary, which is a grand word for the small stone building used for housing coffins before burial. Once he's ensured he's in possession of all the keys to the mortuary, he locks the door behind him. Sloane returns to Moffat Police Station. It's an ordinary stone and tile structure built on the Burnock Water, a tributary of the nearby River Annan. His colleagues have already been notified of the situation. Sloan goes to his desk, makes sure his paperwork is in order, and completes his statement. He then goes upstairs to his living quarters, where his wife and son are waiting for him. Sloan knows tomorrow all hell will break loose. But then, he's used to trying to sleep through the dread. Monday, September the 30th, dawn. Moffat is already alive with activity. In the police station, all senior officers in the county of Dumfries Shire have arrived to bolster manpower. The press descends on the little town from major cities across the United Kingdom. In the pre-television age, newspaper hacks reign supreme. Though details are still slim on the ground, they know nothing pushes circulation like bloody murder. And if rumors will be believed, this one is shaping up to be a murder like no other. As for Sergeant Sloane, he's back on duty, already at the crime scene under the bridge at Garden Home Lynn. Sloane had hoped the scene wouldn't be too busy, but during the night, a local road worker found an arm and hand near the bridge. The word is very much out, and the area is already crowded with curious locals. Wanting to avoid any further such discoveries made by the public, he orders a thorough search of the area. It turns up a further chunk of a thigh and small pieces of flesh. When it is done, again Sloane takes these latest body parts back to the mortuary where he meets with the same doctors from last night. The stinking bundles are opened and now a grisly inventory is taken. The victim's faces are decomposed beyond recognition. When the count is finished, there are almost 70 parts and pieces, but the bodies are not complete. Could there be more than two of them? And has dumping occurred somewhere other than Garden Home Lynn? While the doctors examine the limbs, Sloane turns his attention to the wrappings. There is a cotton sheet, a blouse, a pillowcase, a woollen romper belonging to a child and, interestingly, sodden scraps of newspaper. If he can identify them and trace their origin, they could be vital clues in the hunt for whoever has butchered the bodies. Returning home, Sloane sets about drying the wet scraps of newspaper, while his wife, Annie, cleans the clothing by hand. Finally, Sloane takes stock of what he's got. Several scraps of the Daily Herald throughout August and one from September. Two scraps from the Sunday Chronicle from late May and early September and one scrap from the Sunday graphic and Sunday news dated September the 15th, all from this year. Now the crime has something approaching a timeline and potentially a location. But Sloan knows the case will soon be out of his hands and he wants to learn as much as possible before that happens. Getting back on his bike, he heads towards the River Lynn. The green lowlands are no longer quiet Crowds have been drawn to Moffat once again, but this time the stench isn't sulphur. Sloan dodges journos and rubberneckers, arriving at the house of a local man who lives by the water and keeps a rain gauge. Cross-checking with the notebook sketches of the body parts, their location and the recorded height of the water, they calculate the disposal must have occurred when the water was at its highest after some recent heavy rains and that tallies with the most recent newspaper scrap. As such, Sloan now believes the body parts to have been dumped at some point between September the 15th to the 19th. This means the killer is working with a head star of more than a week. Back at Moffat HQ, please go over what they know. There are no local missing person reports and the body parts display no signs of preservatives so a grim hoax perpetrated by medical students can be ruled out, too. It leaves the unsettling possibility the victims were killed far away and only dumped here. If so, a motor vehicle would have been the likely transport method. Various lines of inquiry are ongoing, but the cops know they need an expert. They need the help of an anatomist, as they were known back then. The call is made to the professor of forensic medicine at Glasgow University. John Glaster is one of the most eminent names in the field. He's a slim man in his 40s with a neat moustache, spectacles and bowler hat. By the time he arrives at Garden Home Lynn, the scene is a circus. Still, he has a job to do. As a former medical officer in the war, Glaster's authority exceeds that of a mere pathologist. So when he gives an order, it's heeded. On his word, Sergeant Sloane and his men collect samples of everything that can be collected from the dumping site. Leaves, mud, bracken, maggots, and insects. Two stretches of the foul debris are amassed and taken back to the police station. There, Glaister sorts the wheat from the chaff, collecting relevant specimens in jars for preservation and subsequent examination. When he's done, he goes to the mortuary where he examines the body parts for the first time. Glaster agrees with the appraisal of the local doctors. He's looking at two victims here. Studying the cuts, he begins to separate the parts into body one and body two. Clearly the killer has gone to great lengths to conceal the identities of the victims, removing facial features, genitals and extracting teeth. When it's done, Glayster determines three factors. One, the bodies belonged to an older man and a woman. Two, they were bled after death, suggesting a cool, unhurried killer. Three, the murderer had not just the tools to dissect clearly, but the knowledge of human anatomy to achieve it. But the question remains, who? Glayster knows only that the next step must be a full bodily reconstruction. The jigsaw must interlock. Wednesday, October the 2nd. Public interest is by now intense. The police lines are flooded with tips, which all have to be ruled out. Gawkers descend on Moffat in droves, hoping for a macabre glimpse of the bodies. But they're too late. Early that morning, bodies one and two arrive at the anatomy department of Edinburgh University, which is overseen by the renowned Professor James Brash. He's 50 years old, an eminent anatomist and a recipient of the military cross for his services in the medical corps as a major. He's already arranged for two large metallic vessels to be installed. First, the body parts are treated with ether to destroy maggots before being placed in the vessels which contain formalin to preserve the remains. Now, under these controlled conditions, Glaster and Brash begin to have fully observed the work of the killer in sharp detail. It was already apparent that he disarticulated the bodies systematically, but now it becomes clear that he must have needed at least eight hours of clean, skillful cutting in good light using large, sharp knives. There are no wild, random hack marks, Whoever murdered the victims was evidently a professional. He had the ability, the tools, and the stomach to pull it all off. The two pathologists now wonder, are they looking at the work of a depraved doctor? They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer. Exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Sergeant Sloan is on the hunt. He's already sent urgent communications to London and Manchester in an effort to find out more about the newspapers that the body parts were wrapped in. If he can narrow down where they came from, that might well give the investigation a point of origin. While he waits, he turns his attention to the rags and clothing that covered the body parts. The rags are beyond rotten, but after his wife painstakingly washes the clothing, is left with two garments, a blouse and a toddler's yellow romper. Both are mass-produced, but show signs of hand repair, and Sloan knows this could be important. If he can find the hand that repaired these garments, he knows he has a good chance of identifying the bodies and, in turn, will close the net on the killer. Moffat HQ now summons the press to showcase the blouse and the romper. The next day, every major front page carries pictures of the clothing and fresh appeals from police for new information. It leads to an avalanche of tips, but as Sloan already observed, the garments are common and spark no solid leads. Like the waters of Garden Home Lynn, the tips are starting to dry up. On the morning of October the 9th, the case of the Jigsaw murder gets its first breakthrough. Sloan receives a call from Scotland Yard. They inform him that the scraps of he sent them from the Sunday Graphic and Sunday News, dated September the 15th, have been identified. They belong to a slip, or souvenir edition, relating to an event held in Morecambe. The print run numbered only 3,700, and distribution was limited to a small number of newsagents around Morecambe. This is the break Sloan had been hoping for. The bodies can now be connected to a location, Lancashire. And almost immediately, an intriguing new link arises. One of the detectives thrusts the morning newspaper into Sloane's hands. The headline reads, Lost Nurse Mystery. The article below centres on the strange case of a young nursemaid named Mary Rogerson who had vanished from the house of her employer in Lancashire. A doctor, by the name of Buck Ruxton. Sloan marches straight over to the desk of his superior, Chief Constable William Black, and tells him what he knows. Black instantly makes the call to Lancaster Borough Police where he's put through to the superintendent there. Black explains the situation and wonders how it's possible, given the disappearance of the nursemaid, that he was not notified. After all, Moffat HQ asked for all police stations up and down the UK, to review their missing persons files for matches. But the superintendent calmly informs him that while it's true the family of Mary Rogerson had complained of the girl's disappearance, his station had not officially recorded her as a missing person. This is because she has left town with Bella Ruxton, her employer, who is known to have a fiery marriage with a local doctor. But both women are expected to return as soon as tempers cool. Black is horrified. He points out that while Lancaster is missing two women, Moffat has the parts belonging to two bodies that were wrapped in a newspaper from the Lancaster area. But the Lancaster PD superintendent counters. Those body parts belong to a man and a woman. Besides, Bella and Marty have most likely just left town for a few days. Nothing more. Black ends the call. And fills in Sloan. But Sloan just shakes his head. The circumstances match. Two disappearances in the right region, plus the time frame, and the employer is a doctor. Black repeats the superintendent's point about the genders. There are no reports anywhere of a missing older man and a younger woman. Sloan cups his square jaw in thought now. Can it simply be that the pathologists have made a mistake? Either way, the newspaper link to Lancashire is too compelling to simply drop. From across the border, his powers are hampered, but the clue has to be followed up, scrutinized. For this task, Black wants the best. He now places a second call to London, to Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard inspector Jeremiah Lynch is a powerfully built, jovial man. He's 47 years of age. Originally from County Kerry, Ireland, he left his post as a Dublin schoolmaster in 1912 and travelled to London where he joined the Metropolitan Police. By 1914, he had transferred to Scotland Yard. In possession of a razor-sharp intellect, Lynch spent the war trapping spies such as notorious German agent Karl Hans Lodi. In 1919, He became a founding member of the Flying Squad and went after the infamous racecourse gangs. Lynch has a fearsome reputation and a knack for making big-ticket arrests. Horatio Bottomley, the swindler and Member of Parliament, was sent to prison on the weight of Lynch's evidence. By October the 9th, 1935, Lynch is in charge of the Flying Squad and at the peak of his powers. He's at his desk, smoking, when he gets a call from Chief Constable Black. Of course, he's already heard of the Jigsaw murders, but Black now fills him in on the the behind-the-scenes information. Through the scraps of the Sunday graphic, a potential link has emerged between the murders and a doctor named Buck Ruxton in Lancaster. But Black doesn't want to step on any toes. It's a delicate situation. The superintendent in Lancashire hasn't recorded the nursemaid as officially missing, Black doesn't want to show anyone up. Then there's the matter of jurisdiction. Lynch, however, is unconcerned with tact. He sees the value in the possible connection and agrees at once to help. The journey from Scotland Yard is a long one, 250 miles northwest, past Birmingham, Stoke and Preston. When he finally reaches Lancaster, Lynch wastes no time in going after the newspaper scrap clue. He knows that of the 3,700 slip edition copies printed of the Sunday graphic, only a few hundred were delivered by local newsagents. And he aims to interview and identify every single subscriber in the region. He scours accounts and knocks on doors. Just as he went after those German spies 20 years before, Lynch works his way down the list of subscribers to the Sunday graphic with a quiet, meticulous ferocity. And it doesn't take him long. Lynch soon finds a familiar address, 2 Dalton Square, home to Mr. and Mrs. Buck Ruxton. Sergeant Sloane was right all along. Back in Edinburgh, the anatomists are busy reassembling their grisly human jigsaw. They're in continuous contact with Moffat HQ, so when a detective inspector arrives, it's no surprise. But the information he brings is. Explaining the potential break in the case and describing the physical features of the two missing women in Lancaster, he clears his throat now and poses the tricky question. Is it possible the anatomists are wrong on the gender of the bodies? At that very moment, a young lab assistant approaches. He informs them that a third breast has just been discovered amongst the gruesome jigsaw. Despite any embarrassment, Blaister and Brash are scientists. When the facts change, so do their opinions. The descriptions of the missing women fit the pieces in the metal vessels. So do the circumstances of their disappearance. And Ruxton seems, on paper, capable of dismembering them. But pieces simply fitting together won't be enough for a jury. Pathologists know they need evidence. They need to prove that the bodies belong to Bella and Mary. Thursday October the 10th, 1935. Lynch's break in Lancaster is exciting, but back in Moffat, Sergeant Sloan has shifted his focus to identifying the motor vehicle which surely the killer would have used to transport the bodies. Making a list of every police force between here and Lancaster, he works his way down, calling to inquire as to any suspicious incidents involving a motor vehicle. The scenario of the killer using a car to dispose of the bodies has been pursued since the beginning. Tips have come in since the very start, concerning motor vehicles emitting foul odours, which have all proved dead ends or simply hunters leaving kills in their cars too long. But now, Sloan has a name. And with a map splayed out in front of him, the most likely routes Ruxton took on his trip to and from Moffat. Sloane isn't banking on the man's guilt. He needs to be sure of it. And once again, the unassuming country cop strikes gold. At lunchtime, a special message is delivered from the Cumberland and Westmoreland Constabulary. They had indeed recorded a suspicious incident involving a motor vehicle. Three weeks ago, on September the 17th at 12.45 pm, an individual had been involved in a minor car accident in Kendal, some 50 miles south of the Scottish border. A man was knocked from his bicycle by a driver moving at high speed. Having the presence of mind to note down the number plates, the cyclist immediately reported the matter to the police. As there was only one road, the police passed the matter on to the constable on duty at Milnthorpe to intercept the driver. Sure enough, an Austin 12 rental car moving at high speed was flagged down. The driver was in a highly excitable state. He was traveling with a two-year-old child The constable checked the man's papers before letting him go on his way. But he did note down two crucial details. One, the driver had a bandaged hand. And two, his name was Dr. Buck Ruxton. The next day, October the 11th, Chief Constable Black and his detectives travel south using the same road Ruxton had three weeks ago night has fallen by the time they reach Lancaster. Black and his men are met by the superintendent, who had assured him on the phone that Bella and Mary would return once tempers cooled. With a much-changed tone, he now tells Black that various statements have been collected from locals and they all describe Ruxton's behaviour as suspicious. Not least of which, he was seen removing heavily blood-stained carpets from his house. Seeing the gravity of the situation, the parents of Mary Rogerson are now fetched from Morecambe. At 1am, Mrs. Rogerson is shown the blouse and child's romper that Sloane had so carefully kept. She confirms that yes, she had bought the blouse and made the repair in the left armpit herself. As for the romper, she recognizes it too. It was given to Mary by an acquaintance, Mrs. Holm. On the afternoon of October the 12th, Mrs. Home is interviewed by the cops. She confirms Mrs. Rogerson's account. The romper was a hand-me-down that she gave to Mary. The detective presses her. Is she sure? But Mrs. Holm had repaired it herself, making her signature not in it. She has no doubts at all. Now Black makes a private telephone call. Ordinarily, he would keep this type of development confidential. But Black knows, without Detective Sloan, they might not have arrived here at all. In Moffat, Sloan receives the news. The clothing used to wrap the body parts has been definitively identified as belonging to Mary Rogerson. It is the first concrete, unequivocal link between the suspect's house and the horrific dumping ground there is now enough evidence to charge Buck Ruxton. For the first time in a long time, Sloan goes upstairs to bed and falls into a deep sleep. That night, around 9.30 p.m., Buck Ruxton enters the superintendent's office at Lancaster Police Station. Chief Constable Black, in the room as an observer, looks him up and down. The doctor has piercing dark eyes and jet black hair. The questions begin, and Ruxton quickly becomes agitated. The superintendent writes every answer down by hand, and he is soon struggling to keep up with what Black will later describe as the terrific torrent of words which fell from Ruxton's lips. Ruxton's real name is Buktya Chompa Rustumji Ratanji Hakim. He was born in Mumbai to a Parsi Hindu father and French mother. He's handsome and might have passed for a silent film actor. Instead, Ruxton served in the Indian Army as a surgeon. He was there, on the front line, but he honed and sharpened his skills with a knife. He arrived in Edinburgh in the 1920s, introducing himself as Captain Hakim. Ruxton was determined to join the Royal College of Surgeons, but failed the entry exams. It was during this period that he met a restaurant manager named Bella Kerr. By all accounts, their affair was intense and they quickly moved in together. During this time, perhaps wishing to disassociate from his failure to get into his desired college or feeling shunned by society, he changed his name to Dr. Buck Ruxton. And although they didn't marry, Bella became Mrs. Ruxton. Bella quickly fell pregnant and romance gave way to reality. In 1930, they moved south of the border to Lancaster, where Ruxton opened up a practice. With no national health service, it was essentially a private business, and the couple were on their own. But Ruxton was a good doctor with an eye for opportunity. He bought a handsome house at 2 Dalton Square, plumb in the middle of town. The practice grew quickly. Ruxton was charming and kind, often foregoing fees where patients couldn't afford them. By 1935, the kind-hearted doctor and his charming wife were part of the social fabric in Lancaster. They had three children. Business was flourishing and there was enough money for two cars and the hiring of Mary Rogerson, a warm, hard-working local girl, as a live-in nursemaid. But for all his words, Ruxton cannot talk to the cold, hard facts in the Jigsaw Murders. The superintendent asks about the child's romper on the bodies. Ruxton cannot explain it. He now asks about the blood-stained carpets removed from two Dalton Square. Ruxton cannot explain that either. It is now Sunday, October the 13th. Exactly two weeks have passed since the body parts were discovered in Garden Home Lynn. At 7.25am, Dr. Buck Ruxton is charged with murder. He is locked in a cell, still protesting his innocence. Bella and Mary's disappearance, the clothing wrapping the body parts, the scraps of newspaper, the discarded carpets and strange behaviour, it all looks bad for Ruxton. But police on both sides of the border know the case against him is still largely circumstantial. To prove his guilt, they will have to rely on the anatomists and the relatively newfangled concept of forensics. Over the coming weeks, Glaster and Brash make landmark advances across several different fields of science, fingerprints, forensic entomology and photographic superimposition. The anatomists soon determine the cause of death, blunt force trauma in the case of Mary, strangulation in the case of Bella. But three challenges still face them, identifying Mary Rogerson, identifying Bella Ruxton establishing the time of death. Time of death is crucial to any murder inquiry, and the lengths that Ruxton had gone to obscure those truths only made this harder to establish. But he hadn't counted on the involvement of the anatomists. If you'll recall, John Glayster had ordered the maggot-infested debris collected from the scene. He knew the life cycle of the flies and maggots at Garden Home Lynn could, in theory, Prove when and for how long the bodies have been under the bridge. With the help of an expert at Glasgow University's Institute of Hygiene, Glaister establishes the maggots collected belong to the family of the common bluebottle fly. This is an exciting development, given that this particular fly does not lay eggs at the same location, making the life cycle easier to determine. Sure enough, The date the bodies were dumped is placed at September the 16th or 17th, the first such use of forensic entomology in the UK. Now, Glaister and Brash move on to identifying the bodies. Photographs, clothing and fingerprints belonging to the women have been taken from the suspect's house to help the anatomists in their task. But it is not an easy one. Not only had the killer gone to great lengths to remove identifying features, But in his bundles, the body parts were mixed together. Of the 86 pieces, exactly half are indistinguishable between the two victims. But there are oversights, too. One of the most puzzling is that only one of the bodies had its fingers removed. Bella. Why not Mary's, too? They speculate that this is where Ruxton's bandaged hand comes into play. Bella suffered with a pronounced bunion and her foot in the metal vessel was now badly disfigured. As an easily recognizable feature in life, the killer would have needed to remove it. So, had Ruxton cut himself in the process, an injury like that would have hampered the destruction of the bodies. Could that be the reason why Mary's fingers had been left in place? The anatomists compare her fingers in the metal vessel to the prints taken from her room at 2 Dalton Square. Disastrously for Ruxton, they match. Mary Rogerson is positively identified. The anatomists have met two out of the three challenges. Now they must identify Bella Ruxton. This is when Brash has an idea. Superimposing a negative of her skull over a negative of her face in a photographic portrait, they are able to create a macabre but detailed x-ray of sorts. The results are incredible. The match of the skull shape, teeth, and facial features is almost perfect. The job is now complete. The missing threads, Glaster would say, took their places in a web of fact. But the case against Buck Ruxton relies strongly on circumstantial evidence most of which has been gathered using innovative but unpracticed forensic techniques. What if the jury is skeptical? Countless man-hours have gone into this investigation. Impressive deductions have been made. But so too have there been mistakes and missed opportunities. Reputations hang in the balance. But above all, there is the very real risk that a cold-blooded killer with a volcanic rage hidden inside him might walk free. He could then change his name, quietly disappear and start again elsewhere, maybe open another practice. Moffat HQ, Scotland Yard and Lancaster Constabulary are praying this doesn't happen. Will their work and the work of the anatomists be enough? Monday, March 2nd, 1936. Buck Ruxton's murder trial begins in Manchester, England. As he is led up to the dock, murmurs are heard in the public gallery. He is now a shell of a man. The pictures in the news are cut a very different figure. Gone are the movie star looks and jet black hair. His hair is now grey, his skin pale. It is as though the life has already drained out of him. But then, strange ways prison will do that to a man. Around 10:30 a.m. after the formalities, the judge asks how the defendant pleads. Ruxton raises his head. I plead not guilty. King's counsel is J. C. Jackson, an experienced prosecutor. He begins his opening speech by laying out the circumstances of the discovery of the bodies and their disarticulation. He tells the jury of Ruxton's medical knowledge and surgical skill. Then he promises them various witnesses will be called to prove that Ruxton was a man of violent temper that had inflicted violence on Mrs. Ruxton on several occasions. That they will tell of seeing the doctor with his hands around her throat. Crucial, given her cause of death, the strangulation. He speaks of threats and obscene abuse. On one occasion, Jackson says... When she left home, Ruxton was heard to say she will not come back alive. Jackson goes on to paint a picture. Life for the Ruxtons had been perfect, or so it seemed. Bella had always been an extrovert and saw no reason why she should curb her social life. But Ruxton could not understand why she couldn't be happy with the life he had provided. Why did she make so many visits out of town? Why did she have to spend so much money? And who were all these new, young, male friends? Bella always assured Ruxton there was no infidelity, but suspicions haunted the doctor day and night. The bickering turned to blow-ups and those blow-ups became bruises. Eventually, Bella even went to the local police to complain of assault. When they took no action, she fled to Edinburgh, as she did now and then. Ruxton seems an obvious suspect. But in order to convince the jury, Jackson has to give them a plausible motive. And it is a simple one. Ruxton's motive was jealousy. For all the complexities of this case, the reason was as old as the stones in the stream bed of Garden Home Lynn. Simple base envy. Jackson now recounts the events of the fateful night. At around 1.30am in the morning of Sunday the 15th of September, Bella returned home from a night out with her sisters in Blackpool. Ruxton had been taunting himself all day with images of his wife in the arms of another man. By the time she arrived home, he'd worked himself into a jealous frenzy. At last, his suspicions boiled over. In her room, Mary would have heard the scream. Coming out of her room to see what the matter was sealed her fate. She would have seen Dr. Buck Ruxton who had healed countless sick folk and delivered the sons and daughters of Lancaster into this world, strangling the love of his life to death. Jackson's discourse is devastatingly convincing. The motive makes sense to the jury, and when the time comes, the evidence is overwhelming. On March the 13th, 1936, the sentence is handed down. Death. Death. On May the 12th, at the age of 37, Ruxton hangs by the neck until dead. Ruxton's terrible crimes gripped the nation, but he did not count on a humble yet diligent country copper who wouldn't give up, nor the wits of a wily Scotland Yard inspector, nor the brilliance of the anatomists. As Buck Ruxton cut his victims into pieces, he was unwittingly putting together the framework of the modern police investigation. And his jigsaw murders will go down in history as one of the first cases in the UK where forensics, though still in its relative infancy, helped convict a suspects accused of murder. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's February the 14th, 1945 in the quiet village of Lower Quinton, Warwickshire. 75-year-old farm laborer Charles Walton is brutally murdered while slashing hedges on the first farm. His throat has been cut and he's been pinned to the ground with his own pitchfork. Even more strangely, the sign of a cross has been carved into his chest. Immediately, the superstitious villagers suggest some kind of ritual blood sacrifice, but no one will talk to police about it. Local detectives quickly realize they are out of their depth and call for Scotland Yard. Enter Detective Superintendent Robert Fabian, the most famous detective of his time. Little does he know that this investigation will be the most frustrating of his long career. Though Fabian has a suspect in his sights, he just can't make the evidence stick. The case remains the oldest unsolved murder on Warwickshire Constabulary's records. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parkcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parkcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Nicholas Obregon. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.